um, something's going on today that a lot of people celebrate, whether they're in church or not, right? And that's Father's Day, all right? Now, as we recognize fathers this morning, I also want to say that, um, and recognize and acknowledge that sometimes Father's Day can be a very difficult day. In fact, I'm reminded of that very closely, as uh, you all know, my best friend from college passed away <clears throat> about a month ago, and yesterday was his birthday. And today is his, his two sons' first day to celebrate Father's Day without their dad. So I realize for some of you uh, in this room this morning, Father's Day isn't all about happy memories. Isn't all gushy and I'm excited about Father's Day because maybe you don't have your father or maybe there was a bad experience with your father. I want to acknowledge that. Um, that, that, that. That can happen and some of those emotions are going through your mind right now. So I don't want to dismiss that. But I do want to recognize fathers and God and His providence and His grand design uh, used mothers and fathers to bring all of us in this world, right? We all have a father. And whatever relationship might be with that father or not, we have a father. We need to thank God for that because it, through our fathers and mothers, obviously, he gave us life. So we're thankful for that. We also have the greatest example of a father and God the Father, right? And many people say, well, I can't relate to God because, uh, you know, my father was a bad father. So if he's a father, I really can't relate to him. We can all relate to the exact opposite of what a bad father is, right? To a perfect father. We understand what that is. So we can thank God the Father that we have him as our father no matter what the situation is with our own father but uh, I'm thankful I'm not ashamed I had a great father who loved Jesus and he taught me about Jesus and I don't want to be ashamed of that I'm thankful for that and I want to exhort all the fathers in here this morning wherever you are whatever your father is like wherever you are on the uh, on the scale of being a father with your new father you're an old father or somebody in between a father of many a father of few whatever it might be to exhort you to love Jesus first and encourage your children to love him too that's what being a father is all about. That's what being a real man is all about. Uh, so I want to recognize you fathers and just say thank you for being fathers. Um, and we would have you stand, but I know some of you guys don't like to stand, so we're not going to, all right? So I want to exhort you children today, if your father is here, if your father is away, if you need to you personally give him a great big hug, I want to encourage him with a great big hug and tell him happy Father's Day and, give him, and tell him how much you love him. If you have to call your dad on the phone today, I'd encourage you to call your dad and say happy Father's Day. Thanks, Dad. Thanks for being my father. And that may be tough for some of you. Uh, but I encourage you to do that and, and know that God will honor that, your honoring of your father, which we're commanded actually to do, is to honor our father and mother. So I encourage you to do that this morning. With, with that, um, some of the fruits of our fatherhood are now being dismissed for children's worship, if they'd like to, up through the fourth grade. Uh, so if you uh, would like to go to children's worship, uh, you can be dismissed at this moment. And sorry, guys, we don't have flowers for you. I figured you wouldn't know, wouldn't know what to do with them anyway. <laughs> and if the rest of you would take your copy of God's Word, whether that be electronically or uh, in the old paperback version, um, turn to Acts chapter 4. Uh, we'll be beginning in verse 32. This morning as we continue our series on the book of Acts, which we have entitled Missio Dei, which is just Latin, which means mission of God. And that's what the book of Acts is about, about the mission of God. So I encourage you to turn there with us. And this morning we'll be covering uh, chapter 4, verse 32 through chapter 5, verse 16. And again, that's a big chunk, but it's just it's a narrative. We want to get, get the whole picture, and I don't want to separate these two chapters because uh, we'll miss the point. 
uh, of what I think God through the author is trying to communicate to us. Again, just to remind us, in the original manuscripts, there were no numbers. And we got numbers in here. They're helpful. There's nothing wrong with the numbers. They're helpful so we can say, hey, where are we at? And we can point to that. They're very helpful. Um, But there's nothing inspired about the numbers. So don't go, oh, he just jumped right through a chapter. You can't do that. Well, yeah, you can, especially when it calls for that. Um, So we're going to look at these verses this morning. And the title of the message this morning is The Imperfect Church. The Imperfect Church church. And and before we dive in here, let me just pray again and ask God to help us uh, uh, understand his word. Lord, we do pray. We acknowledge that uh, we are at your mercy to understand what your word says, not just intellectually, uh, Lord, but more importantly, spiritually, emotionally, uh, Lord, so that we can apply the truth that you teach us through your word to our lives. Lord, I pray you would do that. Lord, I, I know that people, everyone here this morning is coming from a different week, different experiences in the, the week that has just passed and different things on their hearts. So, Lord, I pray you'd meet them where they are. And, uh, Lord, your word would have its way in all of our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, most people like, uh, they like things to be perfect, right? They want things to be perfect. Let's put it that way. Uh, They want the perfect husband. Or the perfect wife. Or they want the perfect children. (laughs) Anybody got any of those yet? Um, The perfect job. They want the perfect car the perfect neighbor, and on and on and on. People want things to be perfect. That's what they would like to have is perfect in every way. And yet, we're all honest, none of us have found the perfect in any of those areas. And now some of you may be surprised. Some of you husbands may think, I'm pretty perfect. I can't believe my wife doesn't think that she's found that yet. Um, Well, we all know better, right? People also want the perfect church, right? And many people will spend their life looking for the perfect church, only to discover that there isn't one. I mean, people will jump from church to church to church. They'll find something wrong. Oh, not the perfect church. I'm moving on. I mean, I, some people are like 30 churches their whole life, or 10 or 12 churches. Their whole, they just continue to move around because they're trying to find the perfect church, and they keep going. And in their life, they realize the search was in vain because there wasn't a perfect church. Well, Charles Spurgeon, he's a famous preacher from England in the 1800s. If you've never heard of Charles Spurgeon, I would encourage you to read carefully one of his sermons. He had a way with words and believed in the Word of God, preached it with passion, had tremendous impact in the culture in England in his day. But, just to, but, but um, one time someone was leaving uh, his church, was going to leave his church, and told him, I'm, gonna leave, I'm leaving your church because I'm going to find a perfect church. And Charles Spurgeon, being as he was, witty and wise, uh, his response to them was, when you find it, please don't join it, because you'll ruin it. (laughs) Well, the truth is, there's not a perfect church today, and there never has been a perfect church even in the beginning. Many people hold up the early church, the one we've been studying so far about in the book of Acts, uh, in these first few chapters as the perfect church. Um, yet, as we're going to find out today in the following chapters, it was not a perfect church. We've seen a lot of people join our church here in the last year. A lot of growth. It's been exciting to see what God's been doing uh, in, in our midst. It, 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 and I'm glad and thankful for that, what God's been doing in our church. A lot of really good things are going on in our church. Um, but hopefully you haven't joined our church because you think it's the perfect church. Truth be known, as long as I'm your pastor, 
this will not be the perfect church. And we might as well say it, right? As long as you're a member, this won't be the perfect church. As good as things are, they can always be better. Yet perfection will not happen until the perfect one, Jesus, returns for his bride. And then he will purify perfectly the church. And then the church will be perfect. Because we'll see him because we'll be just as he is. We just read about that in 1 John. There's not a perfect church. Now you may be thinking, well, this is a discouraging message already. Great, we've got an imperfect church and I can't find a perfect one. Now we're all in trouble. Uh, but it's not to me, meant to be discouraging but truthful so that we can get on with being the church that God wants us to be and not try to be the perfect church. Or when we're not the perfect church, we all complain and all leave. Oh, we're just not the perfect church. Well, you know, I just want to tell you right now, if you want the perfect church, you're not going to find it. Let me say, if, you, if you're upset this is not the perfect church and you need to leave when you find this is not a perfect church, let's just all leave. Right? We just walk out the doors, lock them up. We can save a lot of money that way, right? That's not what God wants us to do. He wants us to be understanding we're not the perfect church and we understand that we can be on His mission and what is His mission? Taking the gospel to the world. The great thing is the fact that we're not the imperfect church highlights the need for the gospel. It highlights the need that we all need Jesus, not just one time for the forgiveness of our sins, but every single day we need the gospel of Jesus Christ. Is it possible for the imperfect church to be used by God to get the gospel to the ends of the earth? Is that even possible? You're thinking, now, come on. I mean, God would use an imperfect church to get the gospel to the ends of the earth to, to, to fulfill His mission for the church? Yes. That's exactly what He does. In fact, it's God's plan. And we'll see this take place in our, in our passage this morning um, that he uses an imperfect church for the spread of the gospel. You see, he has and is and will use the imperfect church to carry out his mission in the world. And you won't find any other plan. That's God's plan. Aren't you glad that's God's plan? That means we all get to be involved in it. Because the perfect church doesn't exist. I got a good friend of mine who's on staff at Denton Bible Church in the missions department, and he helps get missionaries all over the, the world. And I've known him from our days back when we were in college at the University of Kentucky. He played baseball there. And uh, um, Mike's a tremendous teacher. He's just a wonderful man of God. He's a really good preacher. He fills in. Many of you are familiar with Tommy Nelson at Denton Bible Church. He fills in a lot now for Tommy. And Mike is a great, gifted communicator of the Word of God. And I asked him many years ago, Mike, when are you going to maybe go to another church and become the, kind of the teaching pastor at the church because you're really gifted? And he said, Brian, I'll become the teaching pastor at another church or some other church when I can be the pastor of No People Bible Church. That was, and I said, yeah, I understand what you're saying, right? And he was just saying, too, that there's no perfect churches, and, 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 and he didn't want to, in some ways, deal with all the people that sometimes the pastor has to deal with. But um, Mike understands that there's not a perfect church, and I think we all do as well. But this morning, as we examine these verses, chapter 4, 32 through 5, 16, we'll see God use this imperfect church, the, the beginning of the church, to carry out his mission in the world. We'll see some good things about the church, and we're going to see some really bad things about the church too. And I'm going to work down through this passage of Scripture, explaining it and point out certain things along the way. And at the end of our time together, I'm going to suggest four ways in which we can live out some of the principles that we're going to see in this passage. 
And before we begin there in verse 32 of chapter 4, let me remind you of what has just happened leading up to this point. If you go back to, to, to kind of the end of chapter 3, Peter preaches a powerful message. He calls people to repentance. And any time you call people to repentance, you're going to get some feedback and probably some pushback. And he sure enough does get some feedback and pushback. Uh, they don't like it. And he and John find themselves in jail, persecuted for preaching the gospel. And we saw the last time we were in Acts, that that's part of the deal, isn't it? Those who choose to live godly lives will be persecuted. It's not a question. When we choose to present the gospel, all of its truth, um, then we will be persecuted. It comes with the territory. We're promised that. We, we entitled the message last time, The Fellowship of the Persecuted. And we welcomed all of that you who know Jesus Christ into the fellowship of the persecuted. Because that's what we are. Persecution is part of what the, the gospel brings when you preach it and when you become the church God wants you to be. Now notice what happens right after this initial persecution of the church beginning there in verse 32 of chapter uh, 4. We'll read down through the end of chapter 4 here together. And the congregation of those who believe were of one heart, and this is right after the persecution, and soul. And not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of the land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales, and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any one had need. Now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian, birth, when she was from the island of Cyprus, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land, sold it, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Wow! This is what was happening after the initial persecution of the early church. That's pretty amazing. When you read that, you, you ought to go, wow, that's, that's pretty impressive stuff. And the, the issue is, and the reality is, this is often what happens throughout the history of the church. Persecution leads to the church growing and getting stronger. Persecution actually helps the church grow closer to each other and becomes more effect, and help it become more effective and helps the church fulfill its mission. Isn't that amazing? The enemies of the gospel, led by the influence of Satan, think that their persecution and they're trying to put down the church will destroy the mission of the church, taking the gospel into earth, and yet it always ends up helping the church grow. We're always wanting to alleviate persecution. Now, I'm not saying we should go jump in and we're looking for persecution. But when it comes, instead of spending so much time trying to alleviate it and do everything we can to protect ourselves from persecution, just move on with the gospel. Just move on with the mission and let God use that to inspire and fuel the mission of the church. When, when, they, when we'll see here, they start scattering them. They get, they're still in Jerusalem. All of a sudden, the church is going to get scattered because the persecution is going to get turned up a little bit hotter. And hotter and hotter and hotter. And then the believers begin to go all over the world. What's the mission of the church? And what does it say in Acts 1, 8? To Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the outermost parts of the earth. What happens is sometimes we get comfortable, and I believe it probably would have happened with these believers as well, is that we got comfortable with no persecution going to come where they would ever where they have ever gotten to the uttermost parts of the world. Maybe not. But thankfully God and His sovereignty and his providence in the life of the church he allows persecution to come so it can fulfill its purpose and all of a sudden they grow stronger you see this here with, with, the, with these believers they go stronger they love each other more and all of a sudden God uses this to bring about his purposes 
Now look back in verse 32 in the phrase, the congregation of those who believe were of one heart and soul. They were of one heart and soul. I love that. Maybe that should be the name of our church, right? The One Heart and Soul Church. No, we can't change that now, but hey, but that'd be a good one, wouldn't it? The One Heart and Soul Church. But that's where they were one heart and one soul. And one heart and one soul. This is actually an answer to Jesus' prayer in John 17. It's often called the high priestly prayer of Jesus. But um, he's praying and to the Father, and you see that. All right, let's, let's look at John 17, 20 through 23. This is Jesus praying. I do not ask on my behalf of these alone, but for those who believe in me through their word. That means for them alone was the apostles, and he's talking about those who would believe in him or on him through their word, through the apostles' word. Who is that? That's the church. That's all of us as well. That they may be all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I and them, and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity. So the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you have loved me. So what's happening here, we see this prayer of Jesus coming true in the church. They were of what? One heart and soul. They were unified. They had become one. And that was what Jesus prayed would happen to those who would believe in his name through the apostles' word. And that's exactly what we have. They believe, we saw this earlier, they believe, actually in verse 32, in the congregation of those who believed, all right, they believed and they were of one heart and soul. Jesus' prayer, which we shouldn't be surprised, was answered. Because he always prayed according to the Father's will. Now these people were part of the beginning of the church and they were the beginning of the fulfillment of Jesus' prayer. They loved the Lord, they loved each other, and were in agreement in their purpose. They were unified. Now, how did they get this way? How did they get unified? How did they become one heart and soul? I, I think A.W. Tozier <clears throat> explains how this happened when he writes, Has it ever occurred to you that when 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned, are, are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to, the, to, one, to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers met together, each one looking away to Christ, or in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they, were they to become unity conscience and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. See what he's saying? Just like pianos, they don't, we don't tune. If you have a, if you have a, t- a piano that's off-tune, you don't tune another piano against the one who's off tune. There's a tuning fork, right? And those who've ever tuned pianos, I've seen it done. I can't do it. I don't understand what's going on. But they're trying to get it to the tuning forks. Or they, do little, they may not call them forks anymore, but there's a tuning fork that says this is on tune. And in the same way, instead of tuning one off of a bad piano, we don't tune off each other. We'll be in trouble then, right? If I've got flaws in my life, which I do, and you try to tune your life off me, and then another person tries to tune their life off of you, and we keep doing that, the church won't be of one heart and one soul. And, and the way that we become of one heart and one soul is that we pursue the heart of God through His Word. And our focus of that will result in being that we are of one heart and one soul. Don't become, as, as A.W. Tozer said, unity conscience. Let's strive for unity and make the focus be unity. And you see that, you've seen that throughout the history of the church. 
all of a sudden people make unity the issue. And they begin to do everything to get unity. And I guarantee when you do that, what happens is you start compromising on truth to be unified. So there's peace. And in reality, the scripture teaches there's no unity unless you're unified on the truth. All of a sudden, when we become unity focused, we stop believing in what it said. And we saw in Acts 4.12, and there is salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which you must be saved. We start compromising on stuff. Well, you know, that's not that big of a deal. That you only save through Jesus Christ. Well, we'll put that aside just for unity's sake. See what happens? The Trinity is really not that important. The death and resurrection, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, not really that important. We can just put it aside just for unity's sake. No. The reason they were of one heart and soul was because they were agreed upon what was the truth. And they sought Jesus. They sought the gospel. And they were unified because of that. That's what brought them together. <clears throat> this then will lead to what Jesus said will result. Uh, back in John 17. So that the world may believe that you sent me. One heart and one soul leads to effective witness. That's so important. When we are of one heart and one soul, what a testimony that is to the world. Let me just say this. Now, do you remember where all these people came from? Back in Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, they came from all over the known world. Spoke different languages. We had this miracle of people being able to speak in other tongues so they could all hear the gospel. They all came from different backgrounds, different customs. They had different dialects. They had different everything. And yet, here they are, different economic circumstances, different ideas about how you should do this and that. And yet, here it says of these people, and now possibly up to 20,000 people, it says they're of one heart and one soul. That's a miracle. That can only be explained by God. And when that happens, it leads to effective witness. People have to say, how in the world can those people who speak different languages have all these different ideas about all these different things, they dress differently, they, they, they have different customs to do this and this and this. How can they be of one heart and one soul? Well, let me explain to you how that can happen. What a great opportunity. And, and you, you may think, well, we're not as diverse as that. You'd be surprised how diverse we are, right? Just get in, your, get in a life group. And you find out how diverse you are from the people right here living in your same community, maybe people who grew up next door to you. There's differences. And yet when we can come overcome those differences and be of one heart and one soul, it leads to effective witness. And we're going to see that here in our passage in just a few minutes. Well, look at verse 33 again with me. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection uh, of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. The apostles continued to preach about the resurrection of Jesus and all that that meant. They continued to make the gospel the focus of the message. When I say the gospel, we're just talking about the resurrection. Well, the resurrection is, in a, in a sense, the completion of the gospel. If Jesus didn't raise from the dead, as you learn in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, then we're still in our sins. Our preaching is in vain. Our faith is in vain. The resurrection summed it all up and completed the message and the, the, the work of the gospel so that we could be forgiven. So we would have good news that those who are sinful and separated from God and deserve God's wrath, because Jesus came and died in our place and we would place our faith and trust in Him, we can be forgiven. That's good news. That's the gospel. So when they say that they, that they, they continue to witness about the resurrection of Jesus, they're talking about the gospel. Now some people say we need to get past the gospel and go deeper. You ever heard of that? 
I mean, they, I'm just tired of hearing the gospel all the time. Are you kidding me? You can't get deeper than the gospel. That's what the whole Bible is about from first to last. It's about the gospel. And people want to go deeper. Where are they going to go? We can't even understand completely the gospel. We can't get past John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's as deep as it gets. Because that's what the whole Bible is about. And yet we think we're smarter than God and we've got to go deeper. We can't go deeper. Now notice the result of the apostles giving testimony of the resurrection of, of preaching the gospel, making that the focus. Look there at verse 33. Abundant grace was upon them all. That's a result of making the gospel focus. The focus of the church. Making the focus of their message. Remember that grace is not only getting, what you, getting something you don't deserve. That is grace. But it's also the desire and power to do God's will. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15.10, he says this, he says, By the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace toward me did not prove vain. And that's talking about, I got something I didn't deserve. I was saved. God forgave me. I didn't deserve that. He gave me His Son so I could be forgiven. All right. Then it goes on and says, But I labored more than them all. But not I, but the grace of God in me. And here is the, God, the, the word grace, meaning it's the desire and power to do God's will. Grace is way beyond unmerited favor. It is that. But it's more than that. It's what God gives us every day to honor Him. And, and the fact that abundant grace, it says the abundant grace was upon them all, it was evidenced by their generous giving. Now, I know some of you, you've got to be honest. If you really want to read this, you've never read it before, even if you have, you've got to get uncomfortable with what's presented here. Come on. They all, everything was in common. They were giving up their land. They were selling, laying the apostles' feet. They were just, no one had a need because they were all just so selflessly giving that, that, that no one had a need. Let's be honest. That makes you a little uncomfortable, doesn't it? Makes me a little uncomfortable. I look at my life and say, am I, am I like that? Is that my heart? Is that my life? And you're thinking, man, this is, yeah, this is definitely the imperfect church because I don't want to be a part of a church that gives like that. No, we should want to be a ch- part of a church that gives like that. And we see this not only in verse 32 where it says that uh, they, they, they claimed that any, and no one of them claimed that not anything belonged to him was his own, but all things were in common property. Also, verses 34 through 37, on and on how they gave, and they gave and they laid it at the apostles' feet, and people were selling land, selling property, and giving it for the betterment of the church. Now, let me say that this is not communism. A lot of people have made this, try to say this is communism. This has nothing to do with communism. Why? Because it was voluntary. And we'll see that here in chapter 4. It was voluntary. They didn't have to do it. They got to do it. And that's the difference between the gospel and everything else. Is we get to. We don't have to. Now we may feel like we have to because it's in our heart we want to. But we get to. And they got to. It was voluntary. Barnabas here is, is given as an example of this selfless generosity. Uh, it says it was going on. And they just decided, okay, let's pick out this one guy. God, through Luke writing the book of Acts, decided, okay, we're going to pick out one guy and give an example of what that looked like. So Barnabas, who obviously was a man of some wealth because he had land, um, uh, he sells his land. In verse 37, he owned a tract of land and sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, now get this. It was the gospel and the presenting of the gospel was what was inspiring these believers to to such selfless generosity. Think about this. 
as the gospel was being witnessed, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and the grace in the gospel led to gracious and selfless giving in the people. Why would that be the case? Well, first of all, the word grace, all right, um, the, the word grace means to give. All right, that's where we get the word. The word grace, which word a good word to give, is to grace someone. We give things to people, and if it's a true gift, you don't get anything back for it. That's grace, and they were inspired in a sense as they heard the gospel. Were reminded that God sent His Son, the perfect Son of God, or God the Son, came and died in our place and gave us forgiveness of sin and salvation from sin. And we didn't deserve that. How can we live any differently than that? But to give of ourselves for the betterment of the gospel. To give of ourselves for the betterment of the church so we can be about the mission of God. Uh, this, this generosity and unity was truly amazing. Again, just as we think about the diversity and, and, and the people that were involved here. Things were going pretty good. Wouldn't we all say, this is pretty good. This is good stuff. This is a good report on the early church. Everybody agree with that? I mean, there's, there's generosity, there's, there's selflessness, um, there's unity. They were of one heart and soul, it says. The gospel was being preached, and abundant grace was upon them all. Now, look at verse 1 of chapter 5, and I'm going to read down uh, through verse 11, uh, and then come back and, and touch on some things here. And I just want to warn you, all right, if you've never read this, this will be a hard passage to take. And just think about the very first word. Think about how things are going. It's really good. Everything's selfless and unity and all that stuff's going on. And the very first word, chapter 5, verse 1, is but. But. There's going to be a huge contrast. So here we go. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge and bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price to the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you, that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men but to God. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon, came over all who heard of it. That's like the understatement of the year right there. The great fear came over all who heard of it. The young men got up and covered him up and carried him, up, him out. They buried him. Now these elapsed, now there elapsed, I'm sorry, in an interval about three hours, and his wife came in not knowing what had happened. And Peter responded to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, Yes, that was the price. Then Peter said to her, Why is it you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out as well. And immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard of these things. I was going to entitle this uh, um, message, Come and Die. And I mentioned that at our elders meeting the other morning, and and Tyler, who's not in here, he says, no, you should entitle it, If You Die, If if You Lie, You Die. Um, And uh, you see what happened here uh, with this uh, amazing account. 
And let me just just help us get the feel of the early people who first read Acts. And I think it's what God, through Luke, wanted to do. Just by the naming of Ananias and Fire, their names were Ananias and Fire. The word Ananias means the Lord is gracious. All right? And Sapphira means beautiful. There couldn't be more irony than, than this, the fact that their names are the Lord is gracious and beautiful. Nothing in this passage is gracious and beautiful. Now, the passage before this, right before this, it was gracious and beautiful, wasn't it? Now, everything following this is not gracious and, and beautiful when it comes to Ananias and Sapphira. But that was their names. The issue was not that they did not give all the money. Did you all see that? That was not the issue. Look there, it says, um, he says to Ananias in, in, in verse uh, 4, While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? I mean, you didn't have to give any of it. You could have sold it and not given anything. See, this is the whole voluntary aspect of it. You didn't have to give anything. And yet you, you sold it, here's the issue, and you gave some of the money, there's nothing wrong with that, but you gave some of the money and pretended like it was all. And you let everybody know it was all. We don't know exactly what happened, but somehow, the way that they gave the money, they indicated they had sold the piece of property and given everything that they had gotten it for, just like Barnabas. And maybe they looked at Barnabas and said, maybe Barnabas, I mean, look what Barnabas did. I mean, that, that's like the high level of spirituality. People are going to think a lot of you then. They even changed Barnabas' name. Maybe they'll change ours. They probably should have changed it to what it would have really been, right? Greedy and hypocrisy, maybe. Um, but but they, they didn't do that. But here's what happened. Something in their hearts was wrong. And they gave. They wanted everybody, it wouldn't appear to be something that they weren't. Now, sometimes we are, well, most all the time we are something that we aren't. But we don't try to appear that way. Maybe somebody looks at you and says, man, that person is such a godly person. And they, they live this way and, and they look at you in that way. And that's fine as long as you're not trying to present yourself in that way when you know you're not. Okay? They were trying to present themselves as something. And the word hypocrisy comes from, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a theater term. It means to play act. To act like you're something or someone when in reality you're not. It's a, it's a term from the theater. And so they practiced hypocrisy. That was the issue. Jesus warned of hypocrisy in the Sermon on the Mount. Look what Jesus says. This is like his strong, one of the strongest warnings in all the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, 1 through 4. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your followers in heaven. So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so they may be honored by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving will be in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. They made, somehow made a big deal of this. And somehow, God, through the power of the Holy Spirit with Peter, allowed him to see through their hearts. Now let me point something else out here that's just very important as we look at this passage. Um, Satan's influence is real. Let me say this again. Satan's influence is real. And it's powerful. Right? And we see that because Peter asked him why, uh, look there in verse 3, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back some of the price of the land? All right? Then, not only is Satan's influence powerful and real, but Ananias was completely responsible for his sin. Now look there again 
It says, why is it, verse 4, why is it you have conceived this deed in your heart? Where was the deed conceived? In Ananias' heart. Satan didn't make him do this. Did Satan influence? Was Satan cheering him on and say, hey, go get him. Hey, if you want to really be look spiritual and everybody, spiritual and everybody think a lot of you, go sell this land, give part of it, and act like you gave it all, then everybody's going to think, hey, man, you're spiritual, just like Barnabas, and they may change your name to something wonderful. Satan was all about that, but he didn't make Ananias or Sapphira do anything. They chose to do it. And that's so important. I love Peter. He was a great counselor. Most counselors in the world will say, you know, your, your, your upbringing, that's what caused you to, to do this. Right? Now, you're not in any fault for doing this. And, you, know, you, 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 you can do all these evil things and insanity. I mean, I'm sure that's what caused it. All these other things, all these outside influence, and never personal responsibility, but never in the Bible do you find that. Peter was a great counselor. Yes, Satan was involved. He was influencing you, but you're responsible, Ananias and Sapphira. You're responsible. When it comes to our sin, yeah, there's lots of things to influence. It makes it more difficult sometimes to do the right thing, right? But ultimately, we are accountable for our own sin. All of us are. We can't be like Flip Wilson and say, the devil made me do it. And some of you know who Flip Wilson was. Uh, No, he didn't make you do it. We can't blame Satan for our sin. Now also notice too, and and not that this is a side note, this is an important passage of Scripture about this, but notice in verse 3, he says, Why has Satan filled your heart to to lie to the Holy Spirit? Now drop down, last phrase in verse 4, You have not lied to men, but to God. Now which one was it? Did he lie to the Holy Spirit or lie lie to God? Yes, exactly right. He lied to the Holy Spirit, he lied to God because the Holy Spirit is God. It's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit that's clearly taught throughout the Scripture. Remember, remember this one, I taught on it, it's been a little while now, I can't remember how long, but I did this whole series on the, on, on the Holy Spirit, but I did one message just on the Trinity, and 98% of the people in the room raised their hands, said the first message they'd heard just on the Trinity and nothing else. Not the Trinity mentioned. So remember this, there's one what and three who's. What God, who Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And that's what the Bible teaches. It's hard for us to comprehend that. I get it. I don't, I don't, I don't get it in the sense I understand it completely. But it's hard to comprehend that. But that's the truth of what's taught. God, the Holy Spirit. God, the Holy Spirit is God. He is divine. All right? So that's an important passage. If you want to know that the Holy Spirit's God, right there is one of the most important passages in all the Scripture about that. So, so why does God take their life? Why does God say, all right, Ananias and Sapphira, I'm taking your life. You're going down right now. Why does he do that? Well, I think the Old Testament can help us here a little bit. I'm not going to take you there and read all this, but in Joshua 7, right after the conquering of Jericho, and most people, even they grow up in the church, know the story of Jericho, right? Here comes Joshua, and, and, and they, they're, going to, they're going to march around Jericho, and the last day they march around how many times? Seven times, and they blow their trumpets, and the walls come tumbling down, Right? amazing miracle of God for the Israelites to be able to knock down the walls of mighty Jericho and take that city. Amazing. Well, with that, God said, don't take anything out of that city as a spoil. He put under a ban. Do not take anything as spoil for your victory. Well, there's a guy named Achan, alright, in chapter 7. He sees some nice looking garment and he's like, well, he probably won't mind about this. So he takes the garment and he hides it. When God told him, don't take anything. 
And then they, they, they come up on this next little city called Ai, and this is it's spelled Ai. All right, Ai. And the AI is nothing like Jericho. They don't have near me. They don't have a wall. They don't have all these amazing men. And they say, "Well, let's just take a couple thousand. That's all we need." AI is like easy. We'll knock them over, just blowing at them. Well, they show up, and AI routs the Israelites, and they run and flee. And they're like, oh my goodness, what happened? Well, Joshua begins to inquire what happened, and he finds out that Achan had disobeyed God, and he had taken just one person had caused him to get routed by AI had taken. One of the things God says, do not take a spoil, and he'd taken it. And guess what happened to Achan and his family? God killed him. Now that's pretty harsh, isn't it? It's pretty harsh that he would do that. Pretty harsh that he would do this to Ananias and Sapphira. Well, think about this. The situation with Achan was near the beginning, in a sense, of Israel becoming a nation. Coming into the land, really becoming a nation. And God uses this as an example. Here at the beginning of the church, Ananias fire, very early on in the church, he uses this as an example. An example of what? That God is serious about the purity of his church. He's emphasizing the importance of the purity among his people, that we don't just allow things to continue to go on and say nothing. That, that sin is serious. The wages of sin is, help me, death. Always, that's the wages of sin. It may be delayed sometimes, but it's always death. The wages of our sin is death. Now, Jesus paid for our sin. The wages of sin were death on Jesus. But the wages of sin is death, and God is emphasizing the importance of purity on his, of his people. Most people are shocked that God does this. Well, let me tell you, we shouldn't be shocked at this. What we should be shocked at is that God doesn't do this more often. Now think about this. If God did this every time there was hypocrisy in church, the seats would be empty this morning. Let's be honest. We've all pretended to be something that we aren't, haven't we? Every one of us in here. And if you're pretending like, no, that's not me, well, you may go first. That's all of us. We've got to be thankful that God doesn't do this more often. Now He does it again, we'll see it, and you see it in Corinthians. That some now sleep. They were taking the Lord's Supper with, with the wrong motive, the wrong heart, and not considering others before themselves. And God said, then some now sleep. And he wasn't talking about getting Z's at night. He took their life as an example that sin is serious and the purity of the church is serious. Well, now look with me at verses 12 through 16. Uh, right after this, it's important. You think, what in the world does this have to do uh, with, with what just happened? Let me explain to you after I read these verses, 12 through 16. At the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico, but none of the rest uh, dared to associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem. And now, Just a little humor in that, that they didn't dare associate with them, and people were dying in this place, and yet they held them in high esteem. There was something else, maybe, maybe verses 32 through 37, they still saw, but there was enough fear that people were kind of held them at arm's distance. Verse 14, and all the more... And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women were constantly, listen to this, adding to their number to such an extent that they even carried the sick out in the streets and laid them on the cots and pallets so that when Peter came by, at least a shadow might fall on any of them. Also, the people from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were com coming together, bringing people who were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all being healed. Wow. 
Wow. What, what does this have to do with what just happened? You, you need to ask that question. There, there's a purpose for this. There's a reason it follows right after this. There's a reason this happened right after this situation with Ananias and Sapphira where God is yelling out, sin is serious. I'm serious about the purity of my church. Not the perfection, but the purity of my church. That We take sin serious. We shouldn't look like everybody else. The church should look different. I think it's summed up really well with a, a quote by a guy named G. Campbell Morgan. He says this, The church pure is the church powerful. Let me say that again. The church pure is the church powerful. When the church takes purity seriously, God uses the church in powerful ways. And we see that's what happens. Is all these things we're talking about. So we don't have any apostles today. All right, And there was, this is a special a time in the life of the church where they were displaying these things to, to help spread the gospel. I'm not saying that God can't perform miracles today, but you see this even in the Old Testament. Early on in the Old Testament, some mighty, mighty miracles, but you don't see that same amount of miracles happen throughout the whole Old Testament. Same with the New Testament. Early on in the life of the church, mighty, mighty miracles as the gospel spreads. And that doesn't mean there weren't any miracles after that, but there was a lot less. All right? But the issue here, and I think that the point that God through Luke is trying to make is that when the church is concerned about purity, when God begins to purify the church, powerful things happen. I mean, there was, there was healings here. There was people. The most important miracle, which I tell you all, all the time, is that people were constantly being added to their number. That people who were enemies of God, who hated God, which were all born like that, and we proved that early on in our life, that we're about ourselves and not God. They were enemies of God, and God changes their heart and makes them sons and daughters of God. That's the biggest miracle that's ever happened in this world. That's the greatest miracle. And that's what's happening here. And amazing things are happening. God is using them in, in amazing ways. Why? Because the church pure is the church powerful. And church... People of Grace Bible Church, if we want God to use us in a powerful way to fulfill His mission, then we need to be serious about purity. We need to be serious about obedience. Oh, here we go. This legal It's not legalistic. Jesus said this in John 15. If you love me, you'll what? Obey me. It's all about love. Do we love Him? That's the question. When He says, well, it's just a little thing, God. It's not a big deal. I mean, it's just like one garment. It was a huge deal. A lot of the Israelites lost their life in the battle of Ai because of one guy. One guy was hindering the work of God. Now, God took care of that, as he always does, because his work will get accomplished with or without us. It was one couple here. Right after, man, it's saying all these amazing things. They were one heart and one soul, and they were being selflessly generous. And then, but, Ananias Sapphira came along. And hypocrisy gets into the early church and if they would have let that in there and let stay and God done nothing, it would have hindered the work of the mission of God in the church. But God lovingly took care of that. And we ought to pray that God will lovingly take care of that in our own lives, right? So the church pure can be the church powerful. Well, I told you at the beginning, I'd come back and give us at least four ways. There's more, more than four points in this passage, but four ways which we can live out some of the principles that are taught here. Number one, be of one heart and soul. Be of one heart and soul. 
How do we do that? We pursue the heart of God through His Word. We seek to become tuned to God. So if we're tuned to Him, we'll be tuned to each other. Right? We'll be of one heart and soul. Because God will be directing our hearts and our souls. And then we'll be on the right path to be of one heart and one soul. Secondly, be selflessly generous. Let me just make this statement. You are a steward, not an owner. You are a steward, not an owner. What's that mean? Everything you have is God's. Every single thing you have, even the Old Testament teaches, even the ability to work, to make money, was given to you by God. It's all His. We are stewards. We are the ones who take care of what He's given us. He's entrusted them to us. And we understand that we're stewards and not owners. Then it's a lot easier to be selflessly givers, right? To selflessly be generous in our giving to each other. Now let me just say this. I've been here, I'm in my 13th year, been here a little over 12. Um, in all my time here, whenever that I've known, I, Greg, you probably agree with this, anytime there's been a real need to be let known, sometimes people don't let us know what the need is, so it's hard to meet that. But anytime we've heard of a need, that need's been met. So hats off to you people who are part of Grace Bible Church. From the very beginning, there's been a heart to want to give. But I want to encourage us, by God's grace, let's don't be satisfied with that. Let's find ways that we can be selflessly generous to the glory of God. Why? Because His abundant grace is upon us all. Therefore, we should be abundantly gracious. All right? Thirdly, be real. Be real, or, or negatively, don't be a hypocrite. Just be who you are and admit, you know, I, I'm just not there yet. I'm, I'm trying to grow in this area. But I'm not, I'm, I'm not there. I'm not there in this area. Maybe even giving it. I don't, man, I don't know if I, I'm at Barnabas' level yet. I don't know if I can just go, if somebody really has a need that I could give up my property to go help that person's need and maybe put myself at jeopardy. I, I'm just not there yet, but I, I can give this. Great, just give that. And just be real. Wherever you are in your walk with Christ, be real of where you are, and then you can grow. Then you can grow to the maturity that Barnabas had in this area and many other areas of your life. But be real. Don't act like you're one thing. In reality, you're another. Because the reality is, we're all the other. And God has continued to perfect all of us. Fourthly, pursue purity for the glory of God. Ask the Lord to purify your life. Ask Him, Lord, are there any of those garments, those things that I've picked up that I've thought, you know, it wouldn't hurt anything in my life, and yet you've told me I don't, those things shouldn't be in my life. Hey, God, show me what those things are. Help me put those things aside. Purify my life individually so that the church, the body of Christ can be powerful in our world for your glory. We all need to ask God to examine our hearts. Show us, show us, Lord, if there's any wicked way which is in me. And then put it aside. Rid ourselves of hypocrisy or anything else that might hinder the witness of the church. The imperfect church that God uses to bring about His mission in the world. Isn't that good news? That's great news. And maybe you're here this morning and, and you're at a place, the, the church, what's the church? It's not this building. It's not the chairs you're sitting in. The church is made up of those who have realized that, God, you're perfect, you're holy, you created this world. And you call me to glorify you perfectly with my life.
And I don't do it. Like it says that we've all fallen short of the glory of God. All of us. We don't meet God's standard of perfection to glorify Him perfectly. And it says we talked about this. The wages of sin is death. We deserve God's just punishment. Not just physical death, but eternal death in a place called hell. That's what we all deserve. And yet God, because of His great love for us, He sent Jesus to be our substitute. Those who were sinful, He sent the sinless one to die in our place. That we might become the righteousness of God in Him. As we trust in what He did on our behalf, we turn from trusting in ourselves and the deceitfulness of sin in our life, and we turn and we trust in what Jesus did to pay for our sin that we might be forgiven and be given the righteousness of God in Christ so we may be right with God and be forgiven. And then we're part of the body of Christ. Then we're a son or daughter of God. If you've never done that, if you've never turned from trusting yourself to trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, my prayer is you do that this morning. And if you have, keep living by the gospel. Keep living by that fact that God is so gracious to you and to me that He would send His Son to die in our place. And then send the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, to indwell us, to empower us, to fulfill His mission for our lives. Let's pray. Lord, thank You so much for Your Word. Thank You for even the difficult parts of the Bible, which sometimes are hard to stomach. But Lord, maybe not hard to understand. Or that You take purity of Your people seriously. And sometimes You lovingly discipline us, even to the point of death here, but other ways You discipline us because You love us. And Lord, You want to use us, the imperfect church, to fulfill Your mission to take the Gospel to the ends of the earth. So I pray that You would use this local representation of Your body, the body of Christ here at Grace. Use us, Lord. Continue to purify us individually and corporately. Or may we seek You so that we would be of one heart and one soul. And may the world notice that and give glory to you. And may 